Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. Today we discuss the essay, The Pianist and the Lobster, by the American documentary filmmaker, author, and philosopher, Errol Morris. Phil and I do a decent job of summarizing the essay in the course of our conversation, so you should be able to follow without reading it. But it's a fascinating read, so we recommend you check it out on the New York Times website. One word that comes up in our chat but doesn't in the essay, is panpsychism. For those who don't know, panpsychism is the belief that consciousness is a property of all things, a fundamental constituent of reality. For the panpsychists, somehow, everything has consciousness. Not just animals, but also sunflowers, thermostats, nebulas, beach pebbles, and Toyotas. It isn't so much that these things can think and feel as we do, but that what we call thought and feeling is already present, in an alien form, perhaps, in all those things. The Greeks were big on panpsychism. Pythagoras maintained that, quote, all things feel. And the philosopher Thales famously said, all things are full of gods. That such a seemingly bizarre idea could gain currency in the modern world, as it seems to be doing even among academic philosophers today, is another surprising twist in this age full of surprising twists. It's certainly an idea that Phil and I take seriously, as regular listeners will know. And it's something Errol Morris, it turns out, also seems to take seriously. In his piece, Morris argues that the mental acts we moderns have tethered to the human mind, creativity, expression, intention, meaning, and so on, are always already tangled in webs that involve non-human things, which, for their part, have a share in the agency we've so far wanted to claim for ourselves. Every pianist, in other words, needs a lobster. Just as every podcaster needs money. At present, Weird Studies benefits from the generous support of over 140 patrons. If you're one of them, thank you for your help. Your fully sentient dollars are helping us keep this podcast strong and ad-free. If you haven't yet become a patron... Check out our Patreon page and find out all the stuff you get for joining. We put out patron-exclusive material every other week. This includes short essays, excerpts from our correspondence, books and film recommendations, bonus episodes, and more. All right, now on to lobsters, pianos, and hidden gods. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Speaking of meat, do you like lobster? Do you eat it? You want to know something? I have never eaten lobster in my life. Holy shit. How I know, right? And I'm not opposed and to eating lobster. And you're from Sudbury? 
They have crawfish up there. Um, I suppose. Uh, the, the lobster is fantastic. Well, that's, so I'm told. Well, that's something we'll do. I've eaten lobster flavored things, lobster bisque yeah. and whatnot. But uh, no, I've never actually had lobster. That's fucking weird now that I think of it. It's like I've gotten yeah. to age 50 and I've never eaten lobster. The guy I was working with had lobster for the first time when we were filming in, uh, in New Brunswick just recently. He thought it was disappointing, actually. Oh, okay. He was why? disappointed. I wonder why. I guess he's... there's no accounting for taste. Ne disputandum gustibus, as right. they say. Can't argue with taste. But I, I would argue with taste. I think lobster. I was going to say, I bet you want to argue with taste. Oh, don't I ever. <laughs> my basic theory is that whoever says yes to something wins. That's my just general thing. So whoever likes hmm. Inuit throat singing actually sees something in it that those who reject it don't see. Hmm. So whoever likes the lobster wins. Wins in the eyes of God. Subspecies are eternas or whatever. Huh. So there's a variation on, I think it's the composer Bax, Arnold Bax, who said, uh, everything in life is worth trying once except for incest and folk dancing. <laughs> Yeah, well, there you go. Everyone has a limit. So as long as you keep away from incest and folk dancing, uh, you're you're good. You should be trying out new things. I basically agree. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not that I live that out. I mean, nobody you know, does. I'm, as I get older, I find the uh, the the usual effects wrought upon the mind by advancing decrepitude. You know, just sort of like increasingly. I find myself turning back to music that I really loved when I was younger. Um, just lately, I've been on this big King Crimson oh, uh, wow. kind of kind of tear. That's so weird. I was going to bring up King Crimson today. For real? And Pink wow. Floyd. Yeah. So strange. Maybe they'll come up again. Yeah. How come? I'm just, if, if I can ask, or is that jumping ahead? Uh, no, I just read um, Nick Cave, the songwriter. Has yes. A, he responds. He's yeah. a big Kim Crimson fan, I he think. Is, he is indeed, yeah. He's a huge fan of the, the guitar playing, at least, in King Crimson. But I I, I was going to bring it up more because he, he mentions two guitarists in this post that he wrote recently. Uh, one is the King Crimson guy, I forget his name, and the other guy- Robert Fripp? Robert Fripp, yeah. And uh -huh. the other is David Gilmore of Pink Floyd, who's my, a, my favorite-, favorite guitarist. Yeah, my favorite yeah. guitarist, for sure. Um, and- Relevant to this conversation, but maybe this will come up when it needs to, you know? Let's go back to lobsters. Let's start with the lobster. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so we're talking about an, uh, an essay by, uh, a long-form essay by Errol Morris, the documentarian called The Pianist and the Lobster that uh, Phil suggested I read recently, and I just did. And I was kind of blown away by it. Fantastic piece of uh, writing. By Errol Morris, the yeah. filmmaker. And so that's kind of up your alley. Definitely. I'm a huge Errol Morris fan and have been for a very long time. So how come? What about him do you like? Um, I, I, on a purely technical or aesthetic level, he's a great innovator. But on, on a philosophical level, I find I share his, uh, his spirit. He has a larger project, Errol Morris does. He wrote a book recently called The Ashtray. It's about Thomas Kuhn, you know, the, the, the author of the famous book, the structure of scientific revolutions. So mm -hmm. it turns out that Thomas Kuhn was Errol Morris's uh, advisor 
uh, at Princeton, or at least one of his professors. And Errol Morris hated him so much and disagreed with him so vehemently that he threw an ashtray at him in the middle of a lecture. And still hates him enough to write a book against him today. (laughs) Like the whole book is like a rejection of Thomas Kuhn's hopeless, life-denying idealism. So – that should make it plain why huh. I like Errol Morris. <laughs> is it really a thing about idealism or is that? No, no, it's uh, literally what he writes against. Yeah. You know, I'm going to tell you, I don't know enough about Thomas Kuhn to be able to say that he was an idealist at all. I didn't well, even know Well, I mean, that. the words thrown around, uh, was he an idealist? I don't think so. I don't think he was an idealist in the Berkeleyan sense. But he gave, uh, according to Morris, he gave way too much power to human cultural discourse and not enough power to the human faculty of perception and our ability to perceive reality and to perceive actual constants in nature. So Errol Morris is a big believer in what really happened. And his documentaries are often about what happened there. He develops a metaphysic in his book that he calls investigative realism. You know, it's not naive realism. It's a realism that's hard to get to, but it's there. And we have to believe that it's there. And if we give up the belief that there's an actual reality out there and that it's not just all human projection, then we're kind of doomed uh, at the civilizational level, according to Errol Morris. So I I sympathize with that for sure. I think that realism is more necessary today than ever, given all the simulations that we're ensconced in and lost amidst, you know. But at the same time, um, he's just a, a fantastic filmmaker. He, he did a series recently called Wormwood. And of course, his first real masterpiece was The Thin Blue Line, which is an investigation or an inquiry into a murder that happened in the 80s. And basically, he got the guy off death row. Um, before becoming a documentary filmmaker, he worked uh, briefly, I believe, as a private investigator, which has really? always been my dream job. Um, he surprises me, Errol Morris, constantly. Like he's a man of he's a man of many parts. You know, he is a man of many parts. I didn't parts. know he had all this musical baggage until I read yeah. this. Turns yeah. out that he knows a quite a bit about music. A significant musical background. So this is a long essay that appeared in the Sunday New York Times, and and which you can find online. Um, it's called "The Pianist in the Lobster," and. Where it starts off is talking about a rather odd episode in the life of an artist, Sviatoslav Richter. Now, Richter is a concert pianist or was a concert pianist. Um, he died in 1997, I believe. And he had, uh, in some ways, troubled life as anybody would who grew up during uh, the Stalinist terror and, um, I mean, just generally in the Soviet era of, of Russian history. And... He had a lot of psychological problems. I mean, he was often kind of taken out for years at a time by depression or depressive episodes. And there's a period in the mid-1970s when he was crippled by depression. And something that kind of got him out of it, that allowed him to be functional, allowed him to play music in public, uh, he had a little plastic lobster, like a toy lobster, that he brought with him everywhere. And this is something that he talked about with the 
documentarian Bruno Montsagion, who is a French filmmaker, has made a series of really wonderful documentaries about musicians. He also worked with Glenn Gould a lot, and Montsagion worked with Richter to create a really wonderful documentary, uh, which you can find on YouTube. I think it's called Richter the Enigma. And one of the things that does not come up in the documentary, but apparently did come up in Austin Johnson Richter's conversations, is the fact that there was this period of time where Richter was really dependent upon this little plastic lobster. He would carry it around in like a velvet-lined case. Uh, he would give it to an attendant in the wings of a concert hall before he went out to play. And then, so, you know, the, the lobster was not like, you know, he didn't like put it on the piano or anything. But he felt that he needed it in order to be functional, in order to do this tremendously difficult thing that he is almost uniquely gifted at doing, which is playing complicated piano music. The essay starts with Richter's Lobster and then kind of goes in a number of directions. It's a long piece. It's almost 15,000 words. One cool thing about it is it's a sort of media enabled. If you read it online, there are excerpts of recordings that allow you to hear some of the pieces of music that Errol Morris is talking about. So I really recommend turning audio on for that. But from talking particularly about Richter's travails and that rather unusual solution that he found for them, at least for a while, Morris kind of pivots to thinking about a now obscure children's record that came out in the late 40s called Sparky's Magic Piano, uh, which is about a little boy who's a, you know, takes piano lessons, but he's lazy and doesn't practice. And then his piano magically allows him to play the most difficult pieces of music really beautifully. Uh, and then the whole thing goes to shit when one day for no reason at all, the piano just tells Sparky, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to play for you anymore. At the worst, at the worst possible moment when Sparky's about to play in front of like a huge concert audience. I was just going to point out that he's played for, for royalty at this point. He's the world famous pianist. And that's when S Sparky's piano decides to abandon him. <laughs> at the worst possible time. And I love, actually, Morris has a really funny line in there where he's like that the piano in Sparky's Magic Piano is sort of like God in the book of Job. Yeah. Doesn't need a you reason know? to stop. Yeah. He's just like, just, yeah, I'm done. You're on your own. Fuck you, Sparky. Yeah. But and by the way, I recommend you can find this on YouTube as well. You can find everything on YouTube, apparently. Um, I would really recommend going and listening to that thing. It's only about 18 minutes long. And talk about weird studies, man. That is a weird fucking piece in a way that a lot of children's stories or just like content created for children becomes deeply, deeply weird once it's dated and lives past its original context. Yeah. Um, the voice of the piano is crazy. It sort of sounds like auto-tune. It's like, I don't know what the tool was that they used to get the voice like that. They tried to imagine what a piano's voice would sound like. And it's like human speech that's been synthesized in some way to pitch correct it. Oh, wow. It's, it, it sounds really fucking creepy. I shall now play the spinning song by Mendelssohn. Oh, no, you won't. What do you mean I won't, piano? Your time is up. I will no longer play for you. And, uh, and, and then Sparky, <laughs> Sparky just gets done brown. 
by this piano. And then he, of course, you know, wakes up and realizes it was all a dream and decides he's going to work harder so he can play just as well as he did in his dream. Uh, but Errol Morris, as a young cellist, uh, he actually had a pretty deep background in classical music. His mother was uh, a very considerable pianist, you know, studied at Juilliard and at Fontainebleau with Marguerite Long. And uh, his aunt was also a really fine artist. And, you know, he grew up in this very musical household. Uh, and Morris talks about playing cello sonatas with his mom when he's young, not realizing when he was young that his mom was actually playing incredibly difficult pieces of music, but just because his mom was a brilliant pianist, making them sound effortless. And so he sort of works in this idea of like, in a way, his mother was his version of Sparky's magic piano, this yeah. thing that just allowed him to be brilliant, even though he didn't kind of realize. I mean, the way he tells it is he actually had no talent. But yeah. uh, but he was allowed to live in this this narcissistic fantasy where he was this great cellist, and so for him, Sparky's Magic Piano has this like dark message at its yeah. heart. Like he doesn't remember he he never remembers the moral, the happy ending that gets stitched onto the end. For him, the story ends with Sparky's humiliation and failure before the crown heads of Europe, yeah. like with his piano refusing to to play for him anymore, and. And but that's kind of the thesis of the piece, if there is one, is that ultimately he's wondering about that hidden, you know, he he quotes the poet Nerval who speaks of a hidden god hidden in things, you know, a hidden god buried beneath the surface of things, and that in a sense, the 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 whole lobster incident with Richter was basically the pianist coming to realize that. But no one has a right to talent. No one can has a claim to talent. That in a sense, whatever it is we do, we do with some hidden agency helping us. And that agency is could disappear at any time. Like in a sense, what he's saying is that what humans have so far thought belonged only to them, the consciousness that produces music, is actually distributed very strangely into the world itself so that – in a way, we're, we're not really in control of what we're doing. In a sense, the lobster is just a symbol for those forces that need to be present for the magic to happen in a pianist's career. Like, and if that lobster, that hidden god disappears, then, uh, so does the pianist as pianist. Mm. And that's kind of what the thesis is, right? It's a kind of a, it's kind of a weird, panpsychist yeah. um, tract it's about how things have agency and yeah. how and and this is clear when you think about a piano i mean a piano i mean when you hear a piano being played we're kind of trained to think oh it's the pianist expressing himself through the piano or herself through the piano but we can always hear the piano itself doing its thing it's like i was mm. gonna, the reason i was going to bring up david gilmore is because when you hear David Gilmour doing a guitar solo, and I think he's a fantastic, amazing guitar player. Um, I was a big Pink Floyd fan in my youth, but I still admire his guitar playing. Is that you, you hear it's really hard to know where the expression splits off between the guitar player and the guitar itself. Like it's kind of the guitar, like – yeah. You know, there's there's a line in Bon Jovi. <laughs> I'm gonna like I'm bringing out all the. Uh, there's a line in Bon Jovi's song, uh, which my daughter is obsessed with right now, um, "Living on a Prayer." When he's he talks about Donnie 
has a six string something and it's stowed away, but he used to make it talk so tough, right? He used to mm-hmm. make it talk so tough. And that's kind of what it is to play the guitar. You're kind of making the guitar speak. And so yeah. the agency is not all yours. Or while my guitar gently weeps, the guitar weeps for you in a sense. The guitar is there so that you can weep in this particular way. You wouldn't yeah. be able to weep. It's not like, oh, I'm weeping. And you put a guitar and all of a sudden my weeping gets translated into the guitar. So the guitar enables a kind of weeping that wouldn't be possible otherwise. It mm-hmm. has its agency. So that's kind mm-hmm. of what the, I think the essay is about. At least that's what I what drew no, me I, to it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I, I agree a hundred percent. That is, that is what it's about. And I was surprised because I'm like, wow, you don't usually find, uh, a brief for panpsychism in the pages of the New York Times. No. <laughs> I don't think the editors realize what he was writing. I, or maybe he does. I mean, he's got that Pythagoras epigraph at the very beginning. It's very, sh- it's very short. It's, uh, so everything is sentient. <laughs> Pythagoras. <laughs> I love that. So it must be some Greek word, but it's like everything is sentient. Yeah. Or what we call sentient is evenly distributed through nature. You know, it's a very strange yeah. idea. I yeah. love that idea. I just fucking love it. And by the way, it's worth noting, um, that the last section of this essay is titled The Hills Are Alive. Uh, Morris means that more or less literally. And there's a great quotation from Neval that put this in such a beautiful and poetic way. There's a section on Neval at the end of this essay. And I guess that's a way also of, of looping back to the lobster. We sort of lose track of the lobster for a while in the middle of this very long essay, uh, long, at least for a New York Times Sunday magazine essay. And uh, it comes back because Neval famously would take his pet lobster for walks on a leash in the parks of Paris. And there's this wonderful quotation. Do you want me to read it in French and then you can read the translation? It's very beautiful. Read it in French, and then I sure, will just to pres- show off. Prosaic, prosaically read it in English. Uh, now I feel really stupid doing this. Souvent dans l'être obscur habite un dieu caché, et comme un œil naissant couvert par ses paupières, un pur esprit s'accroît sous l'écorce des pierres. It's beautiful in French. Yeah, I'm glad you read that out because you can actually hear the music of the language. I read a bit fast. It should be read slowly, but anyways. Do, well, you can read it nice. again slowly. No, that's good. That'll do. Okay. Um, And what that means is, at least this is the translation printed in the essay, often the most obscure of beings houses a hidden god, and like a nascent eye veiled by its lids, a pure spirit buds beneath the husk of stones. I love that. The eye that buds beneath the husk of stones. It reminded me of a passage in Dogen. Actually, uh, this is a passage that the Zen priest Brad Warner recently wrote a little essay about on his blog. And this is from an essay titled Muju Sapu, which is uh, translated at least here as the insentient preached the Dharma. And in it, Dogen writes, in the words of the ancient, the whole universe in the 10 directions is one eye. And furthermore, there are thousands of eyes at the tips of fingers. There are thousands of eyes of right dharma. 
There are thousands of eyes in the ears. There are thousands of eyes on the tip of the tongue. There are thousands of eyes on the tip of the mind. There are thousands of eyes of the thoroughly realized mind. There are thousands of eyes of the thoroughly realized body. There are thousands of eyes on top of a stick. There are thousands of eyes in the moment before the body. There are thousands of eyes in the moment before the mind. There are thousands of eyes of death in death. There are thousands of eyes of liveliness in liveliness. There are thousands of eyes of the self. There are thousands of eyes of the external world. There are thousands of eyes in the concrete place of eyes. There are thousands <laughs> of eyes of learning and practice. There are thousands of eyes aligned vertically. There are thousands of eyes aligned horizontally. And Brad Warner says, but what is with all those eyes? And after a while, he says, does Dogen mean to say that there are states of experience in inanimate objects like sticks? Does he mean to imply that the moment before the present can perceive things? Does he think the external world has intuition? Does he mean that all of these things and more have minds? I believe he does. Yeah. It reminds me of something from Deleuze's um, Difference in Repetition, where he speak, talks about the, the larval subject. And the, the larval subject, if I remember correctly, is this kind of weird concrescence of perception that happens at the pre-subjective levels. You don't have kind of consciousness yet. You have kind of pre-consciousness that's happening all the time at ev in every point of the universe. So he describes the action of these larval subjects as contemplation. So that the mm. fundamental act of the world, what precedes all emergence of consciousness, all if cause and effect, is a kind of pluralistic contemplation or a, a multiplicity of contemplation, basically. And mm. that's kind of what I hear in that Dogen piece. And what I see in this, this, this Nerval's idea of the hidden God, right? The hidden yeah. God, but it, the God's not monistic necessarily. He's distributed in a multiple way across nature. I mean, I apologize for taking so much time with that very repetitive quote, cool. but I wanted to read the whole thing because I think Dogen was doing that on purpose to hit us with the idea of like multiplicity, not one God, but like an infinity of gods. Sounds like an Allen Ginsberg poem. <laughs> it does. It really does. But so I'm sorry I interrupted you. You were saying. No, but I, I just, uh, I personally love this concept that something that we humans have tended to make a claim to, to claim, to claim ownership of, namely perception, consciousness, thought really, is actually always already embedded in the things we interact with in our surroundings and our environment like it's kind of simple really i think um i was thinking of other examples that are and i think piano is a perfect example of it for reasons i hope we to get into but like mm. uh there are simple uh, examples one is uh walking right mm. when you're mm. walking on a a, f a a footpath or a trail in the woods where does the walking happen does the walking mm. only involve you of course not. The walking involves the shape and direction of the trail, the things that you experience along the way. The walking is already, you know, the, the, just the term walk is already involves a world that needs to be there for it to happen. It's kind right. of this Aristotelian thing. You need these material formal causes to come into play for the word to make any sense. So when you're walking, it's also the trail that's walking. The walking, yep. I mean, a, a trail, you know, like everything is kind of the world is walking. Yep. And um, 
And it's, and which, by the way, another Dogen reference, his Mountains and Water Sutra, the whole thing is him talking on and on with that same perseverative, repetitive way about mountains walking. Right. And how you, you should understand that mountains are walking. What kind of idiot are you for not <laughs> understanding that mountains are walking constantly? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's just the dissolution of a boundary that we perhaps arbitrarily uh, drew between ourselves and the world. There's a part in where Errol Morris towards the end says, part of the genius of human intelligence is that we're able to discern boundaries between ourselves and the world. But we could be wrong about everything. Perhaps the boundaries we have imagined are not really there or have been incorrectly placed. Our cartography of the universe could be false, incorrectly imagined. And what he's getting at, and that's when he goes into the Nell Vaud poem, because he's saying maybe the agency that we want to, to own in our anthropocentric way is already, as I've mentioned, already kind of distributed within across nature already. There's a great quote towards the end, the end of the second to last section of this essay, which is the, the bit about Nerval, uh, where he kind of crystallizes his point and, and what you just said, I think, crystallizes his point. Uh, he writes, one should always remember the hidden God is all around us. Nerval seems to quintessentially express these views, the views of the mystery of everything. Is it madness or an acknowledgement of our own inherent limitations in understanding the world around us? The hidden God. Ultimately, what is this hidden God? The idea that someone, something is pulling strings. But where are these strings? The idea of a presence, ineffable, ephemeral, undefinable, that is part of the universe at large. The hidden God ultimately seems an expression of not just the unknowability of God, but perhaps the ultimate unknowability of everything. Where does music come from? How does the pianist take this endless concatenation of notes on a piece of paper, this assemblage of the white and the black, and transform it into sound, into music? that this is ultimately framed in terms of music, not just Richter, but Glenn Gould makes a cameo appearance. There's a lengthy passage in the middle of this article where he has a transcript of a conversation he had with the pianist Jeremy Denk, yeah. who I wrote about recently in a Patreon piece. So um, yes. y'all go and subscribe to our Patreon so you can read it. Uh, but I think it really matters that there's a lot of music in this um, because, you know, there's something that we've, I think we talked about it in one of our episodes on music. Like there's a way in which music itself is weird. It's like inherently weird that if you wanted to say, okay, I want to make a show about weird music as we have in a sense, you could choose any goddamn piece of music because music has a kind of fundamental strangeness to it. And what he, I believe Morris is getting at here is the sort of sense of like music is like this in emergent intelligence that you can't just say it is coming from the confines of the artist's skull. It's 
emerging from this total, I mean, you could even think of it as a cybernetic system of the pianist, the piano, but also the hall, the audience, the the stage and the draperies. Um, you can just continue to extrapolate agents in this total system in which music is being made. And just as we can say that uh, the mountains are walking as well as the man walking on the mountains, Likewise, we can just we can say that Sviatoslav Richter is playing music, but we can also say that the audience is playing the music, that the hall is playing the music, that the city is playing music. Yeah, music is just so fundamentally strange because, like, where does it even fucking come from? Right, and not only that, but it signifies without communicating anything. Like, it expresses emotion without words. Right. Music is is uh, a non-human semiotic. It's it's very mysterious when music works. It's not like there's a dictionary of music somewhere where you know where oh if you want to convey this emotion use this phrasing. It's not like that. It's way too complex to do that with. What it does instead is is it's kind of this. It's like you're trying to give birth to music, but like music doesn't come from the the rational mind at all it's it's this it's like to make a piano produce music is kind of like to make the world produce music or to allow the world to produce something that is inherent to it which is musical and, and there's a reason why probably there's a reason why pythagoras and other ancients uh, referred to the music of the spheres that the fundamental energy of the universe is somehow deeply intimately re- related to music um so music is strange on every level and it's kind of in my mind at least it's kind of the the the, the uber art form for that reason yeah um uh, i agree because first of all nature is make doing it all the time it's also you know, nature also is nature's a great painter as well and a great poet and everything but um yeah i don't know there's just something about music for me you know this is an idea that i am developing in a paper that i'm presenting at the American Musicological Society annual meeting in November. I'm thinking about divination, for example, consulting the I Ching, which, you know, as you all know, who listen to a lot of the show, you know, I'm all about the I Ching. Uh, And the idea is for me that divination is a universal practice. It's one of those things like there are societies that never bothered to develop the wheel, but there isn't a society anywhere that doesn't have some kind of divination. And, you know, in our weird society, uh, weird as in, you know, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, that kind of weird, the modern West, um, it's only us who ever have to stop and ask, why is divination so important? What's the big deal with divination? And my feeling is that it's a musical thing that, you know, the answer to the riddle of why divination is also the answer to the question, why music? Because in divination, what you're doing is you are creating a web work of significances that happen in time. And In life, you have arrivals and departures, you have tensions and releases, you have moments of counterpoint, and you have moments of harmony, and you have moments of dissonance, and all of these things, I'm using musical terms, right? In music, we have a play of 
these abstract forces, but we have a play of it in sound, the most immaterial of media. And yet somehow we are equipped to hear sounds doing these things, attracting and repulsing and coming together and flying apart and arriving and so on. And we're able to perceive those forces through their motions in sounds. But the same basic forces attend everything we do. And in divination, it's as if we're almost die-tagging these events in our lives. So, for example, it's a purely imaginary example uh, that I come up with in my paper. But let's say I get the I Ching line. There's one of the moving lines. I forget. I think it's hexagram 16. Always sickening, never dying. Right. Uh, always sickens and never dies. And I said, okay, imagine you throw the I Ching and you get that and you don't know what it refers to. And you're like, huh, that's weird. And then a couple of days later, you get a call and it's your old buddy from college who's had another relapse and he's back in a drug treatment center again. And you're like, oh shit, that's what that meant. Right. And you have this moment of resonance between the moment of divination and the thing as it happens in your life. And you do that often enough, you start to develop this sense of life as a tissue of changes. I mean, they don't call it the book of changes for nothing, right? Um, a kind of flow, a turbulent flow of change in which the various items that you are picking out of that flow through your acts of divination have these resonances, both with your divination, but also with one another. And they have that, that sense of meaningfulness that we get in listening to music. Yeah. And when we hear the same uh, comings together and comings apart in music. Yeah, and I so agree. like, And so if this is a long-winded way of saying that to me, music is sort of like the secret of everything. It's, it's, it's a language of life itself. I realize this is sounding kind of, I don't know. Of course, I would say that because I'm a musician, but you know. No, but there's a sense in which, yeah, no, and I'm sure that you could use other art forms metaphorically in the same way. But there is a sense in which divination allows you to pick up on the tune of a certain right. situation. I find that, oh, it's pointing out the elements you need to hear or to emphasize in order to hear the song of a particular mm-hmm. situation. Mm. And then once you kind of hear the song, you kind of know where the song is going, right? You kind of feel or intuit your way to into a certain future. And yep. divination is about listening and about uh, paying attention to patterns. And music is kind of the ultimate pattern. The, the wonderful advantage of music is that it has no figuration at all. It's non-figurative. It doesn't have representations in it. That's why, in a sense, it's the the purest art form, quote unquote, because it shows us what all the other art forms are doing. Whereas in the other, like in painting, there's always the trap of falling back into reducing the painting to whatever is representing and not realizing that there's something over and above what a painting is representing. That is, it's music, the music of the colors and lines working together to produce a particular effect that is irreducible to the content, irreducible to the represented, represented content. And so I think it's true. And I think it certainly is true of, of divination. And in a sense, you could say that like in Camus wrote this, you know, said this, and I think it was in his Nobel acceptance speech that you kind of have to live your life as a story, as a song. You kind of have to engage with life as though 
it had meaning and the meaning is in the the the, the melodies and the the harmonies and the dissonances and the counterpoints and how things work symphonically to produce a life you know and in a sense like that's what we mean when we talk about the aesthetic universe and in, in a universe like that well then where does intelligence reside it obviously resides everywhere it resides in the weird hidden god at least who's generating this symphony this song that somehow makes sense and it makes sense before it, it doesn't have to prove that it makes sense and this is the problem with certain forms of existentialism or nihilism they expect life to tell they expect life to provide a justification for itself or exist right. expect exist, existence to justify itself that's job's yep. challenge to god justify yourself god's response is my existence that is not i can't justify the universe the universe is the realm of justification itself it, the music comes before any meaning you ascribe to it the music is meaning itself in the raw so like you can't judge the world you can only listen to its music and find out what it means you know like but that yeah. that it means something you can't question that because that's that's what we were talking about we're just inextricably caught up in an aesthetic process we we often say a story but we could also say a symphony or a, a song yeah. right a yeah. song of ice and fire yeah absolutely you know and i think it's not accidental or incidental that Errol Morris has chosen music to be the focus of an essay that's really about the intelligence in things, in all things, mm -hmm. this kind of panpsychism, um, that it is possible to think of music as having its own intelligence. Right. You know, my favorite definition of music is Edgar Varese. His definition of music is the incorporealization of the intelligence that is in sound. That sounds a lot like, uh, is it Suzanne Langer? Uh, art is the objectification of feeling. Oh, nice. Or Michelangelo's probably apocryphal observation that the, the statue is locked in the marble already. It's like to make music is kind of to liberate the intelligence that's already present in, in sound. I like that. It makes sense to me. And the piano is a good choice too, because the piano, as someone, I think it's Montsaint-Jean in the essay, so the the French documentary filmmaker, the Errol Morris um, interviews, because um, this guy Montsaint-Jean has spent a lot of time with Richter. He says, um, "What is it about the lobster?" And Montsaint-Jean says, "Oh well, pianists are strange. Pianists are particularly strange. They have bigger problems than other musicians because." They have to deal with such massive amounts of information. Well, to me, I would have said, well, it's because they're doing two things at once. That's like most instruments, you're doing one thing at a time. I, I mean, with a violin, you're using both hands, but to produce a single melody, a single. That's uh, right. Right. Or, uh, yeah. And, you're uh, singing. I mean, Monset Jones says, yeah. like, the violinists, they're just singing their hearts out that they have one thing to do. But there's something about the piano where you're doing two things at once. I think it just draws attention to something fundamental about the world, which is that the world is always always manifests itself in a binary way in terms of opposition. And so there's a moment where uh, Montsaint-Jean's remembering this day where Rick Richter, at the end of his life, was starting to lose it. And he's trying to play, I think it's a Chopin piece. He's trying to play- oh, no, it was, a, it was a, a Carmen 
overture. It was Carmen, right? It was okay, yeah. so he's trying to play the the overture to Carmen, but his left hand is playing in the wrong key. Yeah, he stops and he's like, "Wait a minute, this piece is an A major, right?" And he realizes his left hand, but just his left hand, is playing it in B major. Yeah, which which if you know anything about music, is almost impossible to imagine someone yeah. doing that because yeah. you're you're hitting different keys your hand is moving yeah. differently the geography is compl- under your hand is completely different exactly so errol morse is like how's that possible and that kind of that's the first kind of foreshadow of what he's getting at in this piece which is that the, the music that a pianist produces isn't produced by the pianist necessarily it's coming from somewhere else so for example, Errol Morris refers to the work of Benjamin Libet, who um, observed by, you know, experimenting on people who were getting brain surgery, that consciousness only registers a decision after the decision has been taken at the level of the brain. So this is this has been reproduced in different ways, this, this result. And uh, it is kind of disconcerting to people who would hold on to traditional notions of free will because it means that by the time your dis- your consciousness claims to make a decision, the decision's already happened in your brain. Now, how we explain that is one thing, but what Errol Morris is doing is he's using that to show that, in a sense, that the, the moment where you you produce an effect in the world, for example, music, um, it's not just you that's acting. There's always this other thing, this hidden God that needs to be there for it to happen. And that agency, actually, that the freedom of the will might reside not so much in our con- in the conscious eye, but in something deeper, something that we're actually not conscious of, which is a very strange thought. Yeah. He uh, quotes the popular science writer, um, I'm going to mangle his name, Tor Neutranders. Don't know. Uh, it says, consciousness presents its possessor with a picture of the world and a picture of himself as an active player in this world, but both pictures are heavily edited. Consciousness portrays itself as the initiator, but it is not, and as events have already started by the time consciousness occurs. Consciousness is a fraud, which requires considerable cooking of the temporal books. But that, of course, is precisely the point with consciousness. Enormous quantities of information are discarded. What is presented is precisely that which is relevant. Relevant to whom, though? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's such a mind fuck, this free will stuff. Um, Yeah, relevant to whom? Why even bother having this, this kind of like afterthought that is consciousness, this kind of side effect, this mirage on top of nature everything could have happened without it in fact i mean what what the research seems to suggest is that you could even have like beethoven's sonatas existing in a universe with no consciousness at all because consciousness is just the kind of like um uh, feedback mechanism after the fact that seems to register events whereas in fact everything it registers is already decided already has already happened it's very fucked up. I'm guessing, though, that our integral buddies might pause and say, yeah, well, depends on what you mean by consciousness. Because I, I get the feeling that when integralists are talking about consciousness, they mean something that goes considerably beyond the eye. And what um, Neurotranders, Neurotranders, whatever, uh, what that fellow is talking about really is the I, the ego, the the sense of an actor doing things. No, it's true. The sense that we have, whether we know it or not, that there's like this little guy, a homunculus, 
that's peering out through our eyes and, and has little speakers installed inside the control room in our head and is like, you know, pulling on levers and making your body do things. But actually, it ain't like that. You know, and that's one of the things that uh, people who get heavily into meditation always talk about is like the, uh, you know, there's this old story of, um, this old Zen story of Bodhidharma, the uh, patriarch who supposedly brought Zen to the, um, brought Buddhism to China, uh, had uh, a, a student come up to him and, and say, my mind is unsettled. Uh, can you help me settle my mind? And uh, Bodhidharma said to the monk, uh, well, okay, I want you to go and look for your mind, find your mind. And then the monk goes and meditates for a long time and comes back and says, um, I, uh, I can't settle my mind because I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, oh, well, I've already settled your mind then. Right. Right. You know, and so, and, uh, you know, that sort of sense of like, okay, so yeah, there's local consciousness, there's low, or let's say local awareness, but then there's something that's, I don't know. Why would we call that consciousness though at all? Why would we? Yeah, exactly. We could call it anything we want. We could call it Q. We could call it matter. We could call it. I mean, it's just, it's not an I. So it's not consciousness as we understand it or as we can conceive it. It's something else. So yeah, totally. I mean, there's a cool part where uh, that uh, science writer says, we have to distinguish between the person and the I. The person makes the decision, but the I doesn't. And the I thinks it does, but it doesn't. And that's interesting. And I think that's what you're getting at, really. I think there's this trope in some horror fiction, right? Like, for example, in The Wicker Man, at the end, um, Neil Howey, the, the detective who goes to this island off the coast of Scotland to investigate a murder, only to find out that the island is now populated by pagans who plan to, um, spoiler alert, who in the end decide to sacrifice him to their god in order to ensure a good harvest – there's a moment where he sees the wicker man in which he will be um, encased uh, at the end and will burn. And it. burned yeah, alive. Burned alive. When he sees it, he says, oh, God, oh, Christ. I'll never forget that scene where he's freaking out and he's seeing it. But you can – the way I interpret that scene is what he's realizing in that moment. And the whole film builds up to this, I think. this I think this is a valid interpretation is that what he's realizing is that he chose this. His eye always fought it and denied it. But on a deeper level, he freely chose this fate. And um, that's something I think we all experience. Oh, wow. That's why that's happening. Yeah, of course I chose this experience, even though my ego was always fighting it. So there is a kind of deeper agency there that's not an I. Maybe the real consciousness shouldn't be referred to using the in the first person, but in the second, thou. You know, mm. I find that whenever mm. I'm writing, writing on my own, like journaling, I, I have a constant temptation to say you, 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 to, to speak to myself as a you. And it maybe you could say, well, that's just a contrivance or a device for talking to yourself. Or you could say that the proper way to address yourself is with the word you. And that what you think is you is actually always another. Or yeah, I think Rebaud said this, I am another, je suis un autre. Yep. Yeah. You know, it makes perfect sense to write letters to yourself when you're writing. At least to me, it makes sense simply because I never know what I think until I'm writing. Like I just yeah. posted something a couple of hours ago to our Patreon, a thing on uh, 
the trope of wonder as it appears in the writings of uh, scientific popularizers like Richard Dawkins uh, and the particular notion of meaningfulness that attaches to that. But I set about writing something completely different. I'm reading uh, Franz de Waal's new book. Franz de Waal is a primatologist and it's a book called Mama's Last Hug, which is about animal emotions and particularly his findings from years of studying chimpanzees. I set out to write about that and ended up just going down a different track entirely and just investigating something. And in the course of writing it, discovered something. I didn't invent it. I didn't make it up. I discovered something, a distinction that I didn't know before. And it is very much as if I am having a conversation with somebody who is telling me something. Somebody is telling me these things. Well, who is it? Well, it's me, I guess. But what the fuck does that even mean? There's a great story um, about John Nash, the Nobel Prize winning mathematician who is featured in A Beautiful Mind. Uh, actually, it's not about Nash, but a about a colleague of his named Donald Newman. And I'm going to read from the article. As Newman recounts the story, quote, I was thinking about a problem, trying to get somewhere with it, and I couldn't, and I couldn't, and I couldn't. And I went to sleep one night, and I dreamt. I did not dream directly of the solution to that problem. Rather, I dreamt that I met Nash, and I asked him the problem, and he told me the answer. When I did finally write the paper, I gave him credit. It was not my solution. I could not have done it by myself. Right. Well, there it is. There it is. Yeah. I have the same experience writing too. It's that you write and then you discover something. But when you discover it, you kind of realize what you've been doing all along too. Yeah. You kind of find yeah. out what you were setting out to do. And you were thinking you were doing one thing, but in fact, you were doing another. And the process of revision for me has always been a process of discovering slowly what it was I intended to do from the beginning without yeah. knowing I intended it. So, I mean, we're all kind of multiple on, in that sense. Oh, and, yeah. Um, and, and it's not just multiple psychologically, like there are different fragmented alters in our heads. It's more like the the material – because uh, I'm sure you've experienced this too. You're writing and it's it's the choice of word itself that evokes something. It's like the, the, the flow of the sentences takes you somewhere. And yeah. sometimes it's just the sound of the words will take you to some yeah. the music. New, the yeah. music takes the, you somewhere. Exactly. So it's always an interaction with the material, uh, in this case, text, right? Language. It's doing its thing too. It's like, is it is it is it me that's thinking, or is it the language or the, the music or the poetry of what I'm writing that's thinking? Where does the thinking reside? In some kind of interplay between these different forces, you know? There's a moment mm -hmm. where um, Errol Morris is trying to get Jeremy Denk to talk about how sometimes music uh, needs to become almost machinic. And Denk is yeah. talking about the way like when you when you learn really complicated pieces, Errol Morris is asking, what's going on in your head while you're playing these pieces? And he's like, well, I'm thinking, but obviously it's not like a pianist is thinking every note as he goes and then it's like all those notes are going through their heads like the score is no there's some of it is just part is just coming out of the body at that point some of it is coming from the piano some of it is coming there's a kind of machine um what today's would call a machinic assemblage happening that's producing the music and that's it's not just all reducible to the thoughts of the artist 
such that we could describe a musical genius as someone who thinks so fast that he thinks fast enough to play all those notes. It's not like that. No. It's no. that these are people who are able somehow to channel this piece which exists elsewhere and comes through you're hardly th- In truth, you're hardly thinking at all. This to exactly. me is one of the most interesting things. Actually, I wrote about this too in another Patreon post. So I'm giving you all kinds of reasons, people at home, to uh, to sign up for our Patreon. Um yeah, I wrote about this, how I think there's kind of an aesthetic mistake when people believe that if they're watching like Rage Against the Machine or some band where their whole thing is expressing rage, um, that they must actually be feeling rage in the moment that they're playing. Right. right. And I said something to the effect of like, when it's going well, you're not really thinking anything no. uh, or feeling anything except a kind of a sense of equipoise and uh, centeredness such that all of the wild shit that's going on, all the difficult physical gestures that you're making in order to make your music, all of that stuff is bucketing around you, but you are the kind of unmoved pivot. But yeah. that's not an intellectual experience. And this is one reason why like analytical philosophers often write sheer nonsense about music and musical performance because they're stuck with a basically intellectualist idea. Well, music must be a product of the intellect, of the mind, and so therefore what a pianist must be thinking is a stream of very specific thoughts. But uh, I sometimes like to point out when, you know, this has come up in some classes that I've taught, uh, thinking about what practice is for musicians. Um, I say, you know, it's almost as if uh, you've got two different selves, at least two different selves when you're performing. And anybody who's performed music, even at a relatively beginner sort of level, knows what I'm talking about. You can be practicing happily on your own or playing for your own satisfaction with nobody around. But, you know, maybe you get in front of an audience and you're nervous and then there's you who's like trying to intend things and trying to make the music go, well, let's just pretend that you're playing piano because, you know, we're talking about pianists. You're trying to play some piece of music on the piano and sitting on your shoulder is like this little demon that's whispering in your ear, don't fuck up. And so like you're going to get to the hard bit and then the demon starts whispering, here comes the hard bit and you start kind of tensing up for it and then you fuck it up and the little demon says, well, you fucked it up and so on. And anybody will tell you that that's a terrible experience. That is pretty much guaranteed to um, give you a rough performance. You know, we're talking about divided consciousness, but it ain't always pretty having a divided consciousness. In this case, you have that little demon that's sort of like this perspective, you know, you watching yourself and that's oppressive being in the zone, you know, being in the flow state or what have you, that's a thing where you're actually kind of able to lull that perspective to sleep and you have um, yet another Dogen reference, what he calls undivided activity. It's not even quite right to say that you are playing the music because that implies a division. There's you and there's the music. It's actually kind of true to say that you are the music. There's no real distinction between or, you and your playing. Or at least that 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 – the consciousness kind of disappears in that case. It, it's yeah. like the I consciousness is gone. Yeah. Sartre wrote a, an amazing book on consciousness that we should discuss sometime, The Transcendence of the Ego, where he makes a good case for consciousness simply not existing in most cases, mm. uh, in most situations. Um When you're running for the bus, there's no you. There's the bus, there's the running, there's the, the need, whatever it is that's making you run, but there's no 
I sitting behind all these disparate things yeah. coming together. The homunculus pulling the levers yeah, and making your, your just, legs move. There's just an event. And, and that little devil to me is just consciousness itself coming into, you know, yeah, I think it was to fuck uh, everything up for yeah. you. Uh, Bergson has a very interesting theory of consciousness. We've t- talked about this before where he saw consciousness as a subtractive process, not an additive process. Like consciousness adds something to the world. But consciousness is basically a valve that selects a few things, but that all the action has already happened by the time it comes in. It's just a way for, it's almost like consciousness is just the signature of a universal process. It's just where it's inscribed. Like it's, it's what, it's what's finally recorded by the recording angel. Uh, of yourself uh, or whatever. Whereas uh, in fact, everything was all is happening outside of that. Everything's all kind of, it's hard to explain exactly what it's you, the second. It's, I'm going to put it in James's terms. It's the second accounting. Right. The second accounting. Rem- right. Cause you, you remember like this is a callback to our two parter on William James. Does consciousness exist? Yeah. And James says basically, no, if you mean consciousness is some special particular faculty. But yes, if you mean by consciousness, you mean a certain function. But ultimately, he wants to debunk a lot of the way, basically that kind of intellectualist idea of what consciousness is. He wants to kind of debunk that. And his solution to the subject-object problem, the idea that a fact can appear to exist in two places at once, out there in the world and in here in my head, from which idealism arrives at one solution that he believes is fundamentally mistaken. He says, no, there's actually only really one thing, but there's two countings of it. Right. The fact in here and the fact out there, those are really two countings of one thing, which is a very abstract, hard thing to understand. But I love that like idea of the angel of history, the angel that records. That's the second counting. That thing in itself, which is ineffable, right? This is the stuff of mystics. Like for it to enter the slipstream of like what we can know and be aware of and talk right. about, it has to be counted right. a second time. And yet, it has to be recorded. I don't think that even um, Libet would have an argument against this. This does not discount um, or completely discredit consciousness as an agent, I think. Even if Libet is right, the fact of the matter mm. is that um, let's say that you decide to, I don't know, bake an apple pie. So Libet will say, oh, the decision was made before you were conscious of it. But then while you're making the apple pie, it occurs to you that you'll give this apple pie to your sick grandmother. Well, you know, at some point, consciousness needs to be involved in the interplay between the brain and 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 the actions that happen. And it still inserts itself as an agent, even though the next decision is already made at the brain level before the conscious. Like consciousness is not irrelevant, obviously. It's, I'm trying to think this through. How could it be? It can't always be an afterthought because conscious thoughts then affect the brain, which then decides things before consciousness. You know, so it needs to be a kind of interplay. Yeah. There's a moment in the Thousand Plateaus where um, yeah. Deleuze and Guattari say God is a lobster because what, he, what he's saying is that he, he, he describes a process called stratification and the way that multifarious things in the world congeal into, into substances and forms, like things happen. He says the, the things are always organized in, ter- organized in terms of strata, so layers of things. 
trying to make this simple. And then he says, between the layers, you have planes of consistency, which is where subjects emerge, like consciousness emerges. He describes consciousness in this particular case as a body without organs, which means that it is not involved in the causal flux of things that science measures. It's kind of a weird side effect or a mirage floating on top. Nevertheless, it isn't reducible to the stratum. It always has a chance to to send forces in a new direction, to, to create new effects, to influence things in a new way. And that's kind of the weird paradox of consciousness and matter, is that, or mind and matter or whatever, is that, yeah, mind seems to ride on matter, but obviously mind can also affect matter. And so it, maybe it's our theory of time that's wrong, you know? It could be also that a decision is made and then the brain uh, is affected in it in the past to make something happen, but it's just. So, so how do you arrive at the conclusion because from that, the stratum, that God is a lobster? Uh, the body of without organs for the always exists between two strata. It always, it always has two layers, one above and one below. Okay. So in Deleuzian language, it's the molar and the molecular, each of which is a substratum of the other. So that no matter what we do in life, and you see this in philosophy, no matter how monistic a philosopher does, he'll always generate more dualisms. Always. Necessarily. We'll always, it's like the I Ching. You always have yin and yang. Everything splits into two. And that process, stratification, which Deleuze calls the judgment of God, is that process by which things always split into two. And there's no way to stop that. It's constant. It's always, always, always happening at every level. So that's that's why God's a lobster. Or more helpfully, in this case, we could say God is a pianist. He's playing with two hands constantly, right? Yeah. Ah, uh, I get it. Yeah. Sick lobster We could also talk about Jordan Peterson. Bro. He likes lobsters. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, there's... Uh... I didn't really follow that whole thing, but the I understand he did say something about lobsters. I have one more thing to oh, say actually, about lobsters. The, lobster, then I'll let you, oh, I'm the sorry. other thing about lobsters is they have no brain. They have a ganglion yeah, yeah. in their heads connected to other ganglia. They have no brain as we understand brains, as we would recognize. And yet they are complex, socialized, emotive creatures. It, to me, that speaks to Errol Morris's idea of the hidden God. The hidden God doesn't need to be a subject as we imagine ourselves to be. The hidden God doesn't need to be like an I am that I am yeah. kind of God. Intelligence doesn't require a brain. Intelligence only requires a specific instantiation of, I, I'm not sorry, the, the, the yeah, the, the intelligence only requires, I don't know. I don't know what it requires. I don't know what to say next, but it doesn't require a brain. <laughs> well, well, oh, that's, I mean, that's interesting. And a, a useful corrective to a sort of pop science way that actually most educated Westerners, educated moderns have of understanding themselves. Uh, they will always re refer to themselves metonymically right. as uh, in terms of their brain. Uh, where the brain is a, a given a kind of pride of place as a causal force. It's like, you know, the, the brain becomes the little homunculus pulling. Well, the I think in terms of a human body, a human being, the brain is very important. Like if I, rem if I remove your brain. <laughs> yeah, well, right. yeah, of course I'm not going to But is it, but the legs like, will is not the brain go the seat of intelligence as such? Not if what we're saying makes any sense. And not what if Errol right. Morris is writing. Intelligence is distributed the brain exists within intelligence, not the other way around.
Okay, so let me ask you a question. Given that we've been uh, uh, we've been thinking about lobsters here a little bit, so in the Terra de Marseille, uh, which is the kind of traditional tarot pack. It's it's a version of the tarot that the much more familiar Rider Waite tarot is drawn from, but is uh, a little different. So um, it's a cool pack of cards. And one of the most puzzling, enigmatic cards is the 18th trump, which is called the moon. And in it, you have two dogs possibly wolves. I mean, they're not very realistically drawn, so they're beasts of some kind, terrestrial beasts that are howling at... Uh, it's funny. It's uh, you, you know it's supposed to be the moon, but it actually kind of looks like the sun. You, you have the moon face within a kind of a, a helix of, of rays. So you have these animals baying at the moon, and on each side of the card in the far distance, you see a tower... And then on the lower third of the card is a pond. So these beasts are baying at the edge of a pond and climbing up out of the pond is a lobster. Yeah. Emerging from it. Emerging from this pond. So what do we make of that? Now, the commonplace understanding of the lobster is that the lobster is a symbol of the unconscious mind. Right. Because and that you know, oh, I'm sorry. The, the crabs usually it's the crab. Of the, I mean, they're they're interchangeable in in symbolic language. I think lobster and crab. The idea is that the crabs crabs move sideways, so they belong to the unconscious. They're kind of like dream figures. They move in a different way. So they the emergence of the lobster is the emergence of the unconscious. But there's there's definitely on the card uh, resonance between the moon and the lobster. Like they're connected in some way. And mm, yeah, and, yeah like the lobster is kind of like moving up towards the moon, and of course the moon is a symbol of the unconscious as well. And in the zodiac, uh, the sign of Cancer, which means crab, is connected to the moon. So I guess that's the easy answer to what that means. But what I like about this card is its dualistic characteristics. There are mm, two dogs, yeah. two Two's, towers, two of everything, two of everything, and also mm. the uh, drops that are coming, the rays of the moon, which are represented as drops, are moving up towards the moon instead of coming down to Earth. But there seem to be these drops that are moving up from the world towards the moon, mm. which is strange. I don't know. What do you make of it? Well, the upward moving drops suggest sympathy. Like, you know, Correct. Yeah. if you think about like an older kind of magical system, like Marsilio Ficino's magical system that he presents in the three books on life, um, particularly the third of the three books, sometimes he goes with an idea that is uh, maybe easiest for a materialist mind to picture, which is the idea that influences of the stars are like rays, sort of like a, imagine the arrow from the star down onto the earth. It's like it's beaming its influence onto the earth, right? Which, of course, is easily disproved in material science. But then at other times, he is thinking much more in terms of sympathy, which is something a little bit different. Uh, instead of there being a kind of straight line of causality, there is instead something much more like a resonance, um, where you have two bodies that are sympathetic with one another, that move together. Um, the example that Ficino gives is of a lute that hums when another lute in, uh, is struck 
tuning fork, basically. Yeah. Well, you know, like, or if you, uh, or if you go to the bathroom and you're humming a little tune and you notice that one particular note really stands out or really rings in the bathroom, it's because you found the sympathetic resonant point of the room. That room naturally wants to vibrate at whatever that note was, say a B flat or something. And so there's this kind of special sound that you get that is actually, you're not making that. But you're participating in that. <laughs> the room's not exactly making that, but it's participating in that. You and the room together are making this resonance, right? And so from that point of view, you know, think about those drops that seem to be moving upwards rather than downwards. That to me speaks of um, that second notion of sympathy. Right. No, I, I, I think that makes sense. Doesn't say anything about the lobster, but I mean, but then again, maybe it does. Maybe it suggests um, that's a relationship between the lobster and the moon. The two are sympathetic with one another in some way. Right. No, absolutely. But what is it? What is it? The lobster? What is the unconscious? The unconscious is the hidden God, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's yep. just one more name. We come up and we use it to fool ourselves into thinking we know what we're talking about. But what we, yeah. what we mean when we talk about the unconscious, or this is when Freud and Jung talked about the unconscious, is they were talking about the hidden agent, the hidden God, the thing that can produce really complex cultural artifacts without anybody becoming involved consciously, right? Yeah. Like uh, yeah. Jung writes about Faust II, right? Goethe's sequel to Faust, which Faust wrote in a kind of uh, fever, in a, in a sudden burst of inspiration. It just came out and it, it, it feels very different from the first yeah, it Faust. Is. It's very dreamlike and oniric. And yet Jung couldn't find, I mean, when he started mining it for ideas and correspondences and for just substance, he he never hit the bottom. It's filled with wisdom, you know? Jung's mm. Red Book is another example, which is a fantastic work that was published just recently after being, it was locked in a vault literally for decades. And the Red Book is uh, a kind of stream of consciousness, a series of exercises that Jung undertook when he was on the verge of a mental breakdown. He would sit down and he would let his imagination drop into this other world and then he would record what he saw there and what he what he and he interacted with um spirits and all kinds of things and produce this work that it's it's wrong to attribute it to jung it's like a work of yeah. the unconscious and in a sense maybe all the great art comes from that place from that hidden agent and the lobster as a creature that lives in the depths and that emerges and that has a kind of binary double pincer thing which represents the kind of structure of things at the at the, at the metaphysical level is the perfect symbol for that process by which nature produces culture right mm -hmm. um I've always thought that the dream is the perfect – the dream often gets um, ignored in talk of uh, consciousness. Um, people like Terence McKenna goes – you know, all this trouble trying to prove that, that our Stone Age ancestors found magic mushrooms somewhere where all they needed to do in order to perceive the world of the imaginal was to dream, which they did. And we know that animals dream. So we all have a kind of like – a foot already in this other world that where consciousness doesn't exist in the sense that we mean it when we talk about ego, at least. Yes. But, and, but that world, a, a dream is both an artifact of culture and a natural process at the same time. A dream occurs naturally and there's no artifice involved, no cultures involved in the production of a dream. And yet a dream can utilize all the works of culture to get its thing across. It's whatever its message, quote unquote, it might be. Like you could dream of a 
you know, like there, there are examples of scientists. You could see- dream of a pianist who keeps a lobster in, in a briefcase every time he needs to play a concert. Exactly. You know, Richter was not an intellectual guy. He was really not interested in anything except music. I mean, certainly the article that we're talking about plays it off like he, he was just a very playful guy. And he just, you know, probably found like this toy somewhere and thought it was goofy and, and it made him feel good at a time in his life that was pretty dark. And I would put money on Richter not knowing anything about the shit about the tarot or any of this stuff we're talking about. Yet how is it that of all the fucking things for him to latch onto, you can choose anything in the toy shop and it's going to be a fucking lobster. That feels like something someone is dreaming. That's like an occult significance. What's the hidden God? We don't know, and I feel pretty confident saying we never will. But I feel like it's dreaming us. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>